Hello there, and welcome back to Peace in Their Time, episode 101, NEP Life. In the all-too-brief annals of Soviet history, the new economic policy always stands out as kind of an aberration. In a state famous for its command economy, especially during the first half of its existence, the years when it was in effect are often looked at as a road not taken. But that is only with the benefit of hindsight, with the knowledge that Stalin would abruptly wrap the whole endeavor up and go in the exact opposite direction. At the time it was instituted, though, there wasn't any agreement over how long it would go on for, or even how far-reaching it would be. The NEP is notable for two broad reasons in the context of the Soviet Union's development. One, it helped stabilize and grow the economy, and two, it created an ongoing controversy within the Communist Party that would create divisions that Stalin would later exploit to the hilt. And the divisions were there from the outset, too. When Lenin declared that the grain requisitioning system that had been used during the war communism years was going to be wound down in early 1921, there was the unmistakable feeling that it was a retreat. It was one that had been seen coming well in advance, though. The requisitioning had only secured enough grain to partially feed the cities, leaving their inhabitants on starvation rations and shopping through the black market for additional calories. All the while, the countryside itself was pillaged into a famine. The other sectors of the economy were in free fall as well. The factories were shutting down one after another, both as a result of resource disruptions affecting their operations and their workforces fleeing out of the countryside in search of food. The transportation network, too, was on the verge of collapse, with the nation's fleet of trains dwindling after a decade of wartime use and not having the industrial capacity to replace the losses. It was, all in all, a downward spiral that the inexperienced communists had no grand plan to arrest. After the peasant uprisings of 1920-21, even the hardline Bolsheviks had seen enough to abandon the original goal of a purely socialist state right away. The controversy arose over what would replace the idea in the meantime. Lenin's initial order in early 1921 that inaugurated the NEP specifically addressed the grain issue which had already been the key issue for years already. Lenin came to grips with the idea that the peasant communes were at that point outside the reach of the new state to effectively control. There was simply too much ground to cover to assert proper governance, and to continue the requisitions would mean destroying the very source of the nation's food supply. What was needed at that very moment were harvests bigger than any seen in years. The peasants would have to be encouraged, not coerced. To do that... Lenin declared that peasants would be taxed in kind up to half their harvest, with the rest left to them to use as they saw fit. The idea being that enterprising peasants would grow as much as they could, which would mean that the government would get the biggest bang for its buck when collecting its share, and the peasants would still have a surplus left over from their half. The very big, very retreating part of this concept was that the peasant was free to take their half and sell however much they wanted to openly, on the market. A market that would be regulated, but not strictly controlled by the government. The sale of such produce would in theory produce a profit that the peasant could then use to purchase consumer goods, stimulating industrial demand. But what really added insult to injury here was that this change meant that the black market middlemen who had dared to smuggle foodstuffs between the countryside and the cities overnight had their activities legitimized, and they became the first true businessmen of the liberalized market. They became the first NEPmen, the entrepreneurs who dared to profit off of surplus labor in the first state controlled by a communist party. 
This sudden reversal was also carried out among smaller businesses as well. Most factories would continue to be operated in trust by the state, but for things like shops, restaurants, entertainment venues, and the like, individuals could once again become owner-operators. For a lot of the party elite, it was one thing to let the peasants operate with a freer hand. Almost everyone recognized the extent of the food crisis and were prepared to make concessions. However, the liberalization of private enterprises became something that was harder to bear. Seemingly overnight in the cities, shops began opening up, offering fine foods and luxury goods that had been unavailable for years. Of course, such items came at a price, and most of the urban proletariat were again reduced to forlornly looking through shop windows at merchandise they could never hope to have. The Nepmen, on the other hand, they strolled through the city streets with a strange kind of self-confidence, given them the events of the past five years at least, showing off their newfound wealth through their clothes, jewels, and cars. It was a demoralizing sight for the party faithful and for those who might have hoped that the new society could elevate everyone equally. Lenin and his supporters, which included Stalin and Nikolai Bukharin, were not blind to such pitfalls. Lenin accepted the risks of a new bourgeois for the sake of spurring any kind of economic development. As a group, the communists had rolled the dice on seizing a territorial unit that was considered unripe for post-capitalist policies, and the gambles of taking what industry it had intact or expanding the revolution to areas that were ready didn't pan out. A different tact was needed, and a partial return to capitalism was perceived as the most surefire bet. It would create inequalities by its very nature, but the increased economic activity would bring in capital that could then be invested in rebuilding the industrial sector, thereby creating the conditions where socialism could be tried again this time under less hellscapey conditions. Nikolai Bukharin was an interesting supporter of the NEP. I haven't mentioned him too much during this miniseries because it's been dominated by the Civil War, and as the Bolshevik theory guy, he really didn't have a big hand in the events of that war. He was considered one of the top Bolsheviks all the same, again on account of being the theory guy, which, given his relative youth, only being 33 in 1921, spoke to how respected he was. He was also the editor-in-chief of the Pravda newspaper, the big national paper of the Soviet Union, so his voice was well heard throughout the country. And I say that his position was interesting because it represented a big shift in his politics. I believe the last time I mentioned him was back in episode 86 during the debates over the Brest-Litovsk Treaty. At that time, he had been the leader of the left opposition to Lenin, arguing to not make any deals with a nation such as the German Empire. Instead, he wanted to bog that empire down in a guerrilla war across European Russia that would sap its resources dry and allow for a proletarian revolution across Central Europe. He didn't get his way, and as it became clear that the treaty was actually a strategically good move, he backed away from his opposition to Lenin. And just as a side note, Lenin didn't take it personally. Both men were brainy nerds, and Lenin saw in Bukharin an intellectual protege. By 1921, Bukharin was disillusioned with hard-left policies. Practical experience of being in government and actually having to manage the masses led him to the conclusion that the USSR's proletariat was woefully ill-equipped to actually implement socialism, and that material circumstances had to be changed radically before that could happen. 
He was also growing concerned with the state and party apparatus being used to control the nation's economy during the war communism years. And while the communists had made great strides in providing primary education, it fell short in advancing higher learning. And to Bukharin, that wasn't just disappointing, it was dangerous. The masses of the nation could toil like any other, but building communism demanded an elevated proletariat who understood what they were building towards. Bukharin's fear was that if the material circumstances of both workers and peasants wasn't improved, especially in education, they would be locked out of the emerging bureaucracy. He made the observation that while the property-owning classes had been liquidated, that there could emerge a new class separate from the proletariat. It would not be based on owning physical property, but on offices and positions of influence within the state that would give them a monopoly on power. The best way to combat this would be to allow liberalization to move forward to build the nation's material wealth that could be redistributed at a later time. And also that would help roll back the threatening bureaucracy as well, as it would be less of a factor in society. Meanwhile, Trotsky and the left opposition took a different course. They advocated that the state should continue to be the managing force in the economy, and that the liberalization, at least in the urban areas, was unneeded. This position took a little bit to really materialize because even Trotsky could see the failures of war communism and begrudgingly admit that a change was needed. For Trotsky, his time as war commissar influenced his thinking on how society should be arranged. I haven't mentioned the idea of permanent revolution, which was Trotsky's pet idea, and that's because it was never put into practice, but he saw the militarizing effects of war communism as being onto something, even if the results were a little mixed. He didn't try and stand in the way of Lenin when the NEP was pushed forward, but he did turn on it quickly. His turnaround was helped along in that when the NEP got going, all those gauche nepmen started turning up and making a mockery of the struggles that had come before. Even to the communists that had fallen in line with Lenin vis-a-vis -vis the NEP, they had not gone through the trouble of the biggest revolution known to man simply to let these characters run rampant over their new state, and Trotsky became the most visible critic of the NEP. However, even with mounting opposition, there was little choice in the matter. The economic conditions of the country were simply abysmal, and some new igniting spark was necessary. Steel production was down to a mere 5% of the pre-war total, and yarn to make clothes was down to 7%, these being the two base industries that really governed all the others. The collapse in transport meant that Moscow struggled to manage the heavy industries that were theoretically kept in state hands, which required a hands-off solution even there. I mentioned that the nationalized industries were placed into a kind of trust. This was not a bureaucratic trick. Direct state control was replaced with on-the-scene management, which were given simple instructions. Cut costs and increase productivity. And also market goods to active consumers, which oftentimes meant the netmen. The idea was to sell goods directly to the peasants to get them to sell more of their produce directly to the state, but wouldn't you know it, the people with the actual money were the middlemen. And if you're wondering where that magnificent party apparatus that had sprung up over the war years had gone off to, it was in the midst of heavy budget cuts of their own as the state grappled with cutting costs across the board during peacetime. Oh, there was an agency that was set up to monitor the economy, whose shorthand was Gosplan, but that agency unfortunately lacked the resources to actually manage things and would largely just draw up theoretical papers on how a future, centrally planned economy would be managed. 
I bring it up not because that agency would ever execute its own vision, but Stalin would later embark on one remarkably similar to what they proposed, with the addition of a hurried schedule and total indifference towards human life added in, of course. Strategically vital factories like steelworks might receive a lot more attention from the center, in addition to a lot more monetary support, but even in the best of circumstances, the party and bureaucracy lacked feedback coming from the factories themselves to get a comprehensive picture of what was actually going on in the economy. Which, for anybody familiar with the Soviet Union, is almost incomprehensible, and probably why this era is weird. But yeah, the protections of years previous were removed and industrial workers were encouraged to produce more in fewer hours and with cheaper labor. That didn't go over too well for the party faithful, but the results did end up speaking for themselves. With the Red Army demobilizing, millions of mostly peasants were returning to a countryside already overburdened with excess labor, even with all the wars and the gigantic famine taken into account. The competitive growth fostered by the NEP encouraged industries and economic activity in general so that the urban proletariat grew from a mere 1.6 million people in 1922 to a much more solid 5.6 million. Still kind of small potatoes in the grand scheme of things within the greater USSR, but absolutely vital to solidifying the rule of a party based on the working class of the cities. What became obvious, though, just a couple years into the NEP was that the industrial sector simply wasn't keeping up with the demand for consumer goods. By fall 1923, there emerged what was referred to as the scissors crisis, called that because on a line graph, grain prices were falling while the cost of manufactured goods had a corresponding increase. This was a reflection of the peasants producing bumper crops that filled stores with more than sufficient food with plenty left over for export. This new abundance meant that food prices were going down. Unfortunately, the collapse of Russian industry had not been made good since the end of the war. This was going to be the overriding problem that would dominate the thinking of the Soviet leadership. Setting up a factory was not a small undertaking, and the USSR lacked the proper machine tools and facilities to produce the equipment needed to actually equip new factories. The labor was there. Just getting physical machines to operate was the challenge. And with that bottleneck, there was a cap to how many consumer goods could be churned out for the relatively flush peasants to buy. As a result, the cost of those consumer goods shot up. This in turn led to yet another consequence, namely the peasants deciding that buying overpriced consumer goods in exchange for selling their grain cheaply wasn't terribly enticing. The Russian farmer was incredibly self-sufficient. Heck, given everything that had happened to them, they had to be. That self-sufficiency gave them options in how they engaged with the rest of the nation. They could survive without modern home appliances and mass-produced clothing. They had always been able to. And they also were free to do with their half of their harvests what they pleased. And many decided just to store their grain in expectation that prices would go back up at a future date. This was all unacceptable to the communists. Huge sums of grain could not be allowed to be stored away. It had to hit the market for export to bring more money into the country, and consumer goods had to be purchased to stimulate the industries. They were never going to finish building socialism, much less communism at that rate. Trotsky and the left wanted to just scrap most of the NEP and suck up the excess capital and produce in the countryside and use it to fuel state-managed industrialization but the rest of the party wasn't ready to abandon the policy just yet. This is where the state capitalism angle of the NEP really came into play. 
Going into 1924, the party started leaning on the factory managers to start cutting costs so that they could reduce the prices on the consumer goods. The managers had a lot of leeway in how their factories were run under the NEP, but when Moscow put its foot down, it did have to be listened to. But how do you start cutting costs in a factory? Well, you do as capitalists do. You lay off the unproductive workers, slash wages, and demand more hours to be worked more intensely. This was quite the turnaround on the part of the communists, and oh boy, it did not go over well with the workers. Not only was there a lot of excess labor creating a lot of competition for jobs, output standards were suddenly far more demanding. There was also a generational difference between the factory workers. The older ones had operated since before the revolution and stuck to their well-established unions and resisted the orders to intensify production. The newer, younger workers, though, were much more enthusiastic about serving the interests of the revolutionary state and, moreover, were better trained with modern techniques of production, making them more capable of actually delivering on the quotas being demanded by the government. This was also a job security factor, because if you were hitting your targets, it was likely you weren't going to be fired. For the older workers, who were set in their ways and had already endured so much, the 20s became a decade of renewed labor conflict. Starting in the latter half of 1923 and lasting all through the NEP era, strikes, walkouts, stoppages, and protests became a normal occurrence. The issues were consistently the pace of work, wages, and management's ability to unilaterally lay off workers. And because the party could only go so far in discouraging these strikes for fear of causing a break with the workers, the unions usually scored successes in getting their grievances addressed. This was a problem for the party, as they still needed to reduce prices of the manufactured goods. The solution was to start bringing the younger, more enthusiastic workers into the party directly. Recruitment drives in 1924, 25, and 27 served to bring tens of thousands of workers into the party apparatus, wherein they helped form a link between the larger Communist Party and the unions. Grievances were more quickly addressed, and the insensitive bureaucrats who had brushed aside the human costs of the intensification drives were overruled. While labor conflicts would remain all through the NEP, the rate of strikes and stoppages went down as the 20s ticked by and more workers became established in the party. The improved communication also served to nip conflicts in the bud before they escalated into strikes in the first place. But even as pressure was applied to the factories to produce more goods, there remained the task of actually getting those goods to market. This is where the NEPMEN really came into play. The state's experience with directly distributing goods during the war years had been a disaster, and with the transportation network in complete disarray in the early 20s, Soviet leaders were eager to pass the responsibility onto someone else. The NEPMEN stepped in to provide for the shopkeepers and retail owners that would actually sell stuff to people. These guys were a really thin band of the total population, only numbering between 250,000 and 550,000 people at any point in time. And most of these were not big operations, with 70% being family affairs that didn't even warrant a permanent shop, just an open-air stall or a kiosk. 25% did operate an actual shop with a hireling or two, while a scant 1% actually had large operations that employed a couple dozen employees. It was these larger outfits that constituted what passed for supermarkets or retail stores in the USSR. 
Whatever their size, the total volume of commerce handled by them was a huge proportion of the retail economy. At the start in 1922, 80% of all retail sales were handled by the Nepmen. And even with continuous investment in setting up state-owned operations to compete, they still constituted 40% of sales by 1926. For the countryside, where the government's reach was faint, their activities constituted anywhere between 70 and 90% of activity. Simply put, it was a core part of the economy and a necessary mechanism for actually getting goods into people's homes. Which, yes, was a big source of irritation to the party leaders, as even guys who supported the NEP were irked by the private fortunes being made and the state's own dependence on such people. It was also a threat to their control, as the peasantry had far more interactions with the Nepmen than they did the state, which frustrated the party's efforts to be more visible there. It also meant that all that surplus grain that the government wanted to extract from the countryside would have to be purchased from the peasants by the Nepmen, who would then resale it either directly to consumers or to the state. And this went beyond grain, too, with most every extracted commodity being delivered at least in part by private interests. The party would take active measures to restrict just how much could be purchased by private brokers, and by 1926-27, the trend was reversed and only 15% of the volume of grain being sold was handled by Nepmen. A little problem with the Nepmen being suppressed, though. The peasants were far less inclined to sell to the government at the uncompetitive prices being offered, leading to far less grain actually reaching the market. All this talk about food procurement might sound dry, and it really is, but the specter of peasants holding out and engineering a food crisis was going to be a fear that Stalin would exploit to push through what was termed the Great Break at the end of 1928, which brought the NEP to a close and inaugurated decades of no more Mr. Nice Guy policies. And the restrictions placed on private enterprise in the mid-20s wasn't limited to just grain either. There was an entire campaign to revoke trading licenses, especially among the bigger operations. This was the great counterattack by the communists. But all those numbers I rolled off a second ago about how much a part of the economy the Nepmen were still applied. The party did a good job of knocking down the large firms, but their activity was not adequately replaced. By 1927 and 1928, large sections of the country started becoming what was described as trade deserts. Shortages started to reappear, as did the long lines for basic commodities. The black market started reappearing too, which was another contributing factor to more decisive action being needed by the end of 1928. And yes, I realized that an option could have been just to leave the Nepmen alone, but the communists were never going to do that forever. And the suppression of the Nepmen also had the effect of isolating the countryside further, which was developing along its own course from the rest of the nation. It seems odd to think that the Soviet Union, at any point in its existence, even the early years, could have a weak grasp over its own territory. It's a state that was famous for its control, after all. But for the vast majority of the new state's lands... Government control was negligible, as the party leadership contented themselves with a basic level of compliance from the peasants. As the Civil War years had shown, if the peasants didn't cooperate, the whole basis of society, a solid food supply, would just come crashing down. And the NEP was designed first and foremost to avoid that kind of confrontation. Of note, by 1924, the NEP tax on the peasants of providing half their crops 
had been modified to be a simple cash tax, but still one based on expected harvests, which was meant to encourage production as you paid your tax based on expectation, and if you worked hard and your crop was better, you reaped more rewards, which then theoretically meant you'd have a bigger income to spend into the greater economy. As the previously very leftist Bukharin put it, we have to tell the whole peasantry, all its strata, get rich, accumulate, develop your economy. Which was striking coming from the intellectual heir to Lenin, but made sense within traditional Marxist theory that free market activity would accumulate the capital needed to charge up the economy to industrialize. It also stemmed from Bukharin's horror at the death toll of the Civil War and his disillusion with the war communist policies. But for other communists who had also gone through those years, it was still seen as an embarrassment. Like their opinions concerning the nep men in the cities, they had not fought through a war simply to let a bunch of kulaks reap the rewards. And before I go any further, I'm going to need to stop and break down that term, kulak. People threw it around loosely even at that time, and it would only get worse when it became a class that under Stalin would be considered enemies of the people. In its broadest and most applicable meaning, it refers to wealthy peasants. The clearest examples, the ones you can point to and say, yeah, those guys are definitely kulaks, are the ones who themselves had either acquired a lot of land for themselves and needed hired help to operate it all, or operated tool and equipment shops that service smaller peasants, or managed the sale of seed and animal feed, or some mixture of all those things. In short, they were a class of people who acted in a much more commercial manner than simply working a plot of land and selling their excess. The problem with defining them begins when you look at the layers of peasants under those guys, the middle strata of farmers, people who might have some little side operation here or there, who might hire a hand or two occasionally, but not consistently. Technically, they could be considered kulaks as well, even though their material circumstances might not seem that advanced in our eyes, which during the 20s was not huge, but became a much bigger issue under Stalin. The party was especially resentful of the kulaks to emerge from the 20s because they were almost entirely a result of the NEP policies. War communism, the uprisings of 1920-21, and the famines had wrecked the old pecking order in agriculture and left it largely classless. But for a relative handful of peasants who survived the chaos, they found fresh opportunity to advance themselves in the early 1920s. The prior land seizures had opened up estates previously locked up by nobles and gentry that were even more on an equal class than the kulaks. Even as the rural population grew after the wars, which itself was remarkable after all that had happened and with the migrations to the cities, the average farm size increased by 23%, which meant even with the population pressures in play, the average household was increasingly better off. With the nep men coming out into the villages looking to buy, the spirit of enterprise among much of the peasantry was eager to answer their call. And that isn't to say there weren't results, far from it. Bukharin had argued that it was actually cheaper to leave the peasants to their own devices instead of expending huge resources trying to govern them, and that idea showed dividends quickly. By the mid-1920s, agricultural production was reaching a pre-World War I level. Not optimal, but it allowed for the relative abundance of the NEP years. And a promising sign was that production of non-grain products like eggs, vegetables, and meat were increasing. Recall that pre-World War I, that grain was king on Russian farms, with not a lot of diversity in what they produced. With the introduction of mechanical threshers, 
labor requirements decreased and peasants could diversify their operations a little bit without neglecting their core product. Little note, almost all of those threshers in the 1920s that were introduced were horse-drawn versions. The mighty communist tractor would only become more abundant in the 30s, and even then, there were never enough to go around. The problems came in the mid-1920s, when prices for manufactured goods got out of hand. Coupled with declining agricultural prices, the peasants turned inward and cut back on how much they sold. This was most noted with grain, because grain was the product that the state exported for foreign currency. Foreign currency that they then used by machine tools in order to make factories. But for the average Soviet citizen on the street, this was felt in those non-grain products I just mentioned. In the absence of a market that offered them good deals, the peasants kept those items for themselves. The mid to late 20s saw the peasants probably eat better and have a more varied diet than they ever had or would have for decades to come. With grain, they could keep it stored, but with, say, eggs, they'd consume them on the spot. Even while production increased, what was actually delivered onto the market was reduced, which caused a new round of shortages and tensions, which in turn led to a revision of policy once power was concentrated in determined hands back in Moscow. Because while the NEP was clearly stimulating the economy, it was also creating a parallel culture incompatible with the communist project. And that parallel culture was never going to be able to compete with the state once it had steadied itself sufficiently. That showdown, though, will be for the future. For next week, I'll be moving on to changes in culture that were experienced during the 1920s, both ones that occurred naturally and ones driven by the state. After all, what would a new world be without an overhaul of society? So, join me then, and as always, thank you very much for listening.